Good morning. Our reading this week is from Mark chapter 2, verse 23, through chapter 3, verse 6. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat and also give it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning and welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you here this morning. My name is Jonathan Mosier, um, and we're so glad that you're here um, with us today. Um, It's good to be back with you, and I just want to, right at the outset here, extend my thanks uh, on behalf of our family for well wishes and prayers and uh, notes of encouragement and texts and phone calls and everything else. I mean, we were not inundated, don't get me wrong. That wasn't a veiled, um, a veiled comment. We were just so encouraged by the outpouring of love and support over this last week. Um, we, had our, uh, we had our third child. It would be almost two weeks ago, two weeks ago at 1.10 in the morning uh, tomorrow. And um, she came at a, a really perfect time. Um, and, and God was just so gracious to us through the process. For those of you who um, know a little bit, you know that my first two sons were both, um, were both born um, quite early, and so we were praying that God in his graciousness would allow us to kind of get to full term with this one and hopefully avoid some of the additional hospital stays and visits and checkups and all of those things that we um, did previously, and God in his graciousness did that. Um, and so mom and baby are healthy. So we named her Evan Elliott. Uh, Evan is after Jessica's great-grandmother, Evelyn. Um, and so it's kind of in honor of her and then Elliot after Elizabeth Elliot. So for those of you who are asking what theologian or pastor or uh, person are we going to use for a girl's name, we chose Elizabeth Elliot. Um, and we're really, really excited to have her. So she's a sweet kid. She's a good kid. She's sleeping well, um, for the most part, I mean, by comparison. Um, she's sleeping better than we are. Um, but we are uh, just incredibly thankful. So thank you so much for your, your encouragement, your prayers, um, and your support. And I am glad to be here. I did miss being with you guys last week. Um, so turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. We're continuing on um, this week in a series following these various episodes, um, these vignettes that Mark has laid forward in the life of Jesus Christ, and in specific, um, beginning really last week and then um, in the weeks to come as well, looking at these particular incidents uh, where Jesus offended the religious establishment. 
And, and, and mind you, as we talk about this, this is not Jesus trying to stick his thumb in the eye um, of religious individuals, but Jesus also doesn't pull punches when he's interacting um, with the religious Pharisees, with those who were legalistic um, at heart. He, he consistently wants to put in front of people who would claim religion or who would claim to be doing things in the name of God, he wants to consistently put in front of them that what they are participating in is actually a self-religious, or a religious rather self-salvation project. That what they are doing is a means and an attempt to try to earn what only God can give. And so in doing that, By necessity, he upsets them, he offends them. And if you listen to Phil as he read uh, the scripture for us, you may have had the thought that would have been obvious, which is, man, it seems like the Pharisees are really over-responding to this whole situation. I mean, Jesus and the disciples are walking through a field, and they grab a little bit of grain, and they eat it, and Jesus heals this man, and therefore they decide to kill him. I mean, it seems a little overzealous even for the Pharisees. But in actuality, their response to Jesus made all kinds of of sense. And here's what I mean by that. I remember when I was in college, one of, um, one of a handful of books that really transformed my understanding of the gospel and transformed my understanding of the Bible uh, as a whole was a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. If you know me at all, or if you've been around at all, you've heard Lewis's name um, mentioned um, a number of times. And I would encourage all of you to read it if you haven't. But in Mere Christianity, there's one, pro- one portion in particular where Lewis makes the statement. It's gone on to be a very, very famous argument uh, for the deity of Jesus Christ and how we interact and respond to him. And I want to read it for you and just listen Listen to what he states in this passage, because what he states really explains the response of every single human being. And in this case, in particular, the Pharisees. Here's what Lewis wrote. He said, I am, not, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And Lewis's description in that portion of mere Christianity is perfectly in line with what Mark would have us to see. Because as we look at these accounts of the life of Jesus Christ, what we see is that over and over again, both implicitly and explicitly, Jesus is making claims of his divine, supernatural authority. And we've seen pictures of this throughout the book of Mark, even to this point. I mean, we see him making a claim of power over the spiritual as he casts out the the demon from the demoniac in the synagogue. We see see Jesus' power over the everyday, the ordinary, and the illness as, as Jesus heals Simon's mother. We see Jesus' power over the domination of sin. 
as he forgives the sin of the paralytic. And as really we just sang about in that song, Stronger, when we declared together, sin is broken. Well, why is sin broken? Because there is one who is the Lord over all, who broke the power and the domination of sin in our lives. We saw that Jesus has power over religious practices, as Dave talked about last week, and the idea of fasting, that what the Pharisees had declared to be true for all people who were followers of God was not actually the case, and that that ultimately any religious practice, any religious observance is only as effectual and meaningful as it is revelatory of the person of Jesus Christ. And now in this passage, we have the implicit and explicit claim of power over the, order, or, over the order and intention of creation itself. As Jesus declares himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. And we need to spend some time on this because Jesus does this in a way that seems fairly anodyne to our understanding. So look at verse 23 and we'll read those first three verses. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields and as they made their way his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who are with him. Now just imagine the scenario, if you would. The disciples are walking through a field, and they're getting a little bit peckish. It's that time of the day where they're ready to eat. And so they just innocently tear off a few bits of grain. They rub that grain between their fingers to remove the husk. They blow the chaff away so that they can eat that food and then they, and then they partake of it. Now what Jesus and the disciples did in that moment was perfectly legitimate. The law allowed someone who was in a position of being hungry and walking through an adjacent field to partake of that. We find that in Deuteronomy 12. I'll read it for you. You don't need to turn there. But in Deuteronomy 12, 25, it says this. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Right? So they're, they're completely innocent of any wrongdoing here. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 12 is going to say that this was a perfectly legitimate thing for the disciples to enter into. But the problem that the Pharisees had was twofold. First, Jesus was partaking of grain on the Sabbath day itself. And so now they're, they're looking at him saying, he has just violated the law. He has worked. He has started to reap from the field on the day of Sabbath. This very simple act of just taking grain and eating it. The disciples have declared that that's actually Jesus in this moment reaping. And the Pharisees read the instruction of the Old Testament, both in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and and also in Exodus when the Ten Commandments are given. They had read this instruction of the Old Testament to observe the Sabbath, to rest from work, and and the Pharisees did what they always do. They added more rules. In fact, what's interesting is if you look at this, the disciples once, or rather the Pharisees, I apologize if I've been confusing those terms, the Pharisees added 39 rules around what people could and could not do on the Sabbath day. So when they heard the instruction from the Lord, you're to take a day of rest, you're to take a day away from work, you're to focus on the things that are important and just rest in me and be with me, what the Pharisees heard was, if it's a good thing for us to avoid labor on the day of the Sabbath, then what we need to do is create a whole system of laws so that we don't accidentally work. 
And they created 39 categories of what work was to make sure that they didn't cross those boundaries. And among those rules that they listed were three, which, is, which all had to do with reaping, which is you could not harvest, you could not winnow, and you could not thresh. So as they saw the Pharisees pull, or as they saw the disciples rather, pull the grain off of, off of the stalks, and as they, uh, as they saw them uh, rub them in their hands to remove the husk and then blow away the husk so that they could eat the food, they said, there they are, harvesting, winnowing, and threshing. And Jesus, in this moment, recalls the story of David, a story that the Pharisees should have known quite well and certainly would have been familiar with. And he said, do you remember the story of David when he was with his men? They were out and they were hungry and they walked into the tabernacle and they ate the holy bread that was only reserved for the priest. Jesus says, do you remember when he did that? Do you remember when David, the person who you, who you look upon with more favor and more appreciation than arguably anyone else in Jewish history, do you remember when your hero David did that? Because the purpose of that moment was to, was to reveal the fact that God in his goodness and in his grace does give us laws that are for our benefit, for our joy, and for our ultimate happiness in him, but that ultimately those things are not just rules to be the sake of rules. See, what was really at stake here was a fundamental disagreement about how an individual could find himself justified before God. And the Pharisees presumed that their adherence to the law made them right in God's eyes. So they said, okay, we don't want to be found guilty of not resting on the day of rest, so let's define every type of work and avoid those behaviors. They took the instruction of God, instruction that was meant to create joy and bring benefit to his people, and they turned it into drudgery. And depending on your upbringing and the particular strains of Christianity that you've been exposed to, for some of you, this is your experience of what the Sabbath is. Where you grew up in a home where you said, hey, my friends are getting together this afternoon um, after church. I'd love to go hang out with them. Is that okay? And the response may have come back from a parent who misunderstood this concept. No, you may not do that. This is the Sabbath day. You're to sit and think holy thoughts and not do fun things. That's the interpretation that you walked away with thinking. And this is a very common understanding within particular strains of Christianity, that the purpose of the Sabbath is to keep you from things that would otherwise be enjoyable. And and Jesus is going to address that same idea right here, because here's what he says in verse 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And in saying this, Jesus illuminates the actual purpose of the Sabbath, that the Sabbath was established on the example of God himself, that all of this dates back to Genesis chapter 3, where God, upon speaking the world into existence and speaking into existence all of creation, ex nihilo, out of nothing, that he created light and separated it from darkness, that he spoke the world into motion, that he hung the stars and the moon and the sun in the sky, that he that he spoke into existence all vegetation and all life on earth. And over the course of six days of creation, as God accomplishes this magnificent feat, on the seventh day he rested. Not in the sense that he needed to rest because he was tired, but in the idea that he ceased from work to enjoy the perfection that he had just created. That's the foundation of the establishment of Sabbath. It predates the giving of the law itself. 
And so as the Ten Commandments are being given to his people, commandments that were intended not to be a weighty burden around the neck, but were intended to bring flourishing and joy and benefit to mankind. As he goes through that list and says, do not covet your neighbor's wife because it's going to benefit you to be satisfied with the position and the lot in life that God has given you. And it's going to benefit your neighbor and your relationship and whole communities for you to be focused on things that are infinitely important in the way that they reflect your relationship with God. He meant that thing to be a gift that would bring joy. And as he said to the people, you shall not commit murder. He was saying, ultimately, it is beneficial for you. It is a gift to you. It creates joy in you to abstain from behaviors that mistreat other people and ultimately rob them of something that only belongs to God. And in the very same way, he gave the command to observe the Sabbath. Not as as an intention to rob people of something that they would have done ordinarily on that day, but as a gift. A good gift of God to say, look, when you stop in a moment of rest, when you take a day and you observe the fact that God is ultimately the one who is responsible for everything in this world, that he is watching out for you and that he is providing for you and that he wants a relationship with you and that he wants to interact with you when you actually stop to observe a day of rest in your life. You are declaring by virtue of that observance that your life is dependent on the God who you worship, know, and love. What a gift. What a good gift for all people and particularly for a people that live in an age like ours where we find our meaning and our purpose for our very existence in the things that we accomplish. And some of you by nature are workaholics. You love the work itself. You love the adrenaline rush that you get by accomplishing the things that you do while you're at your job or while you're working. You you love the distraction that it provides from other elements of life. You love the feeling of accomplishment uh, and satisfaction that it brings when you've done good work. And so you are constantly chasing that high. And others of you, it's not the work itself that you're chasing, but it's the, it's the results of your work. I mean, you're, you're looking at your job as a means to an end, primarily financial, uh, financial sustainability or maybe even wealth. And so you're viewing your job as a particular means to accomplish something in your life, to provide something for you that gives you meaning and happiness and joy. And here's what a day of rest does. It declares in that moment that what you need above all else is a relationship with the Father that you want to walk with him and know him, that you trust him to be your provider, that you trust him to give you satisfaction and to give you your meaning and to give you your identity in a way that those things can never provide. Because here's the thing, if your identity is wrapped up in your work and your abilities and your money and your end goals, do you realize that all of those things can be taken away instantaneously? Stock market crashes, your company gets bought out, your customer base dries up, and immediately everything that you have worked for and longed for can be gone instantaneously. Some of you have experienced that. And I know that because I've talked to you and heard your stories, and for some of you, I've heard you go so far as to say it was the kindest and most gracious thing God could have done because it was only in and through that difficulty that I realized that what I ultimately needed was him above all else. See, rest for the believer, it's not just a vacation. 
to get away from the busyness of life. It is a rhythm of life in which we are invited to participate. But the Pharisees saw none of that. What they saw was a legalistic legalistic obligation to be checked off a list rather than a good gift to be enjoyed by people who know God and have experienced his love. That ultimately the Sabbath, it's inherently a demonstration of his love. It's a reminder that God continues to work on our behalf when we stop. And so Jesus' point here in saying that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, is not to say that the Sabbath doesn't matter. Rather, what he's saying is experience the Sabbath as the blessing that it is. Do not turn what I intended as a gift into a burden. And then he says says something that would have struck the Pharisees' ears in an incredibly harsh way. He says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now understand this, the Pharisees already thought Jesus was a heretic. He had already declared to people that he could forgive their sins. He had already declared that he had no need of fasting because as Dave talked about last week, you don't don't walk away from the party when the party's going on and the person of the hour is sitting with you. But what Jesus proclaims in verse 28 is beyond anything they could have imagined him saying. Not only is he a heretic in this moment, they didn't even have words to describe the offense that he had just claimed. Because in saying in this moment that he was the son of man, referencing back to Daniel chapter 7, a reference to the coming Messiah, to God incarnate in this moment. He was also saying when when he proclaimed, I am Lord even of the Sabbath, he is saying, I have power over everything, over creation itself, over the times and the days, the allotments of the years, the way that the rhythm of your entire life is broken up is determined by me and it exists for my purposes. Now allow the magnitude of what Jesus said in that moment to wash over you. I mean, the Sabbath, as we talked about, is something that predated the giving of the law itself. It was, the, it, it was intrinsically something that meant an incredible amount to the Jewish people because it separated them from all of the nations around them. All of the nations around them are working around the clock. They they have no observance like this, a regular weekly rhythm where not only do the people rest, but all of the animals rest and all of the businesses close and everybody just takes time to rest and be with God. It was a designation, a, a declaration, both to them and to their unbelieving neighbors that they knew and trusted the living God. And so when Jesus claims in this moment, I am the Lord even of the Sabbath, he was declaring in that moment that he was not just there to reform religion, in the words of one author, but to bring an end to religion and to replace it with himself. Jesus in this moment is not adapting Judaism. He is not slightly altering its course. He is not just correcting error. He is saying a system has ended and a whole new system has begun because I've completed and accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished in that system. Jesus is proclaiming that he was the God of creation. He's proclaiming that real rest could only be found in him. That to experience deep and profound peace could only happen 
by resting in the Prince of Peace. As Roger read for us this morning, the giver of rest. And look how this continues. And you'll just, I just want to make one quick note as you're reading your Bible to be paying attention to things like this. If you'll notice, our reading this morning jumps over that chapter break in chapter two. And that's because the story that, that happens um, next is immediately connected with what happens at the, end of, at the end of chapter two. So we don't want to just allow those chapter breaks to turn our brain off. We want to see what the stories, uh, how these stories are related, what the connection is, and why they're given to us in this order. And here's what it says in chapter three, verse one. Again, he entered the synagogue, as was his custom, And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus, again, here's the Pharisees, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. This is a cruel heart attitude. We're going to see if Jesus heals this man so that we can accuse him in court of breaking the Sabbath laws. Verse 3, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to the Pharisees, in front of this man, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? So Jesus walks into the synagogue. He knows that the Pharisees are watching. He knows that they're there to make an accusation against him. He encounters a man with a withered hand. And in this moment, you can almost, you can almost see this situation play out as Jesus invites this man to come over to him. And as this man is facing him, he turns to the Pharisees in recognition of the fact that they are there to accuse him. And he addresses them saying, what ultimately is the purpose of the Sabbath? Should we do good or evil? Should we heal or break? Should we tear things apart or should we look to restore what can be restored. And we don't know what happened with this particular man. Tradition tells us that that this man with a withered hand um, was a mason who'd had his hand crushed during a work accident. And so you can imagine the pain and the and the terrible experience of his life. I mean, now his whole livelihood is gone. And over time, as those bones were crushed and and the muscles uh, began to atrophy, this man likely now found himself as a beggar. But whatever the case of this man's life, He is now severely limited, and he is in desperate need of healing. Jesus asked the Pharisees the straightforward question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or evil? Binary choice, to save life or destroy it. And in asking that, Jesus pointed out the purpose of the Sabbath, which is to bring restoration to the rundown to bring energy to the exhausted, to bring healing to the hurting. And for Jesus to bring healing to this man was a divine demonstration of what the Sabbath was intended to do. Now look at verse 4. He said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieving at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. 
And imagine this, as Jesus is asking them the question, the Pharisees are standing there stone-faced. And Mark paints this picture in vivid terms. You can almost see Jesus as he looks, almost longingly, hoping to see some demonstration of care or compassion in the lives of the Pharisees. And as he looks from one to the next, looking at each of them in the eye, what he is met with is not the look of compassion or care or concern for someone who is suffering and in a difficult spot. What he sees is a hardness. He sees the cold, uncaring glance of a legalist. And because in this moment the Pharisees care more for their regulations than they do for the people that those regulations were intended to serve, they cannot even ask Jesus, or answer rather, Jesus' simple question. Because to respond to him in this moment that it is a good thing to do right and it's a good thing to, to bring restoration is to declare unequivocally that what Jesus was about to do and what he had just indicated to them that he was going to do was a good and right thing. But for them to publicly declare that it's a good thing on the Sabbath to do evil would have been counter to who they were as the Pharisees. And so rather than doing the right thing, they just remained silent. And this goes to prove Lewis's point. Do you understand, if you're in the sound of my voice, that you cannot remain neutral about Christ? You cannot remain neutral. For the Pharisees to sit in this moment and give no answer at all was not a position of neutrality. It was a position of opposition. It was a warring of their souls, a coldness towards the things of God. You cannot remain neutral about God. Jesus Christ demands an answer. And no answer is also an answer. See, it's in this moment that our tendency might be to sit in judgment of the Pharisees. But the question we need to ask first is this, what led them to be the way that they were? And at least part of the answer is that they found themselves to be self-satisfied. See, they liked the feeling that they had when they observed the law. They liked the recognition of other people when they were doing the right thing. They liked that people looked at them and said, man, those guys, I could never live a life like that. Look how obedient they are and look how observant they are and look how they're always looking to do the right thing and they've memorized scripture and, and they walk around and they're so holy and they're so set apart and they're so different. I could never be like that. And the Pharisees reveled in it. They liked the smug satisfaction they got from looking at others in disgust and dismissal. Because rather than being so overwhelmed by the love of God that they could not help but rest in him and know him and love him and obey him, they had grown satisfied with the self-congratulatory feelings of compliance. And I think this is worth us drawing out for our own lives. Because my fear for many, many Christians is that we live this very, very same way. That we have determined a system of morality, a 
process of obedience, a code of conduct by which we are going to live our lives. And when we live according to that code, we walk around feeling very, very good about our relationship with God and and who we are. And, And we can sing with all sorts of confidence about God's grace. And we can sing about all of these things that we've never even really experienced Because our systematics and our theology and our mind is is all written down perfectly, but none of it has actually gotten to our heart. We are far too easily satisfied. And like the Pharisees, for, for many people, and this is certainly our temptation... Our knowledge of God can often begin and end with a code of conduct. And I love the picture that we get of Jesus in this moment because it's one of these many, many accounts that we have that are just so humanizing about who he is. I mean, you see in this moment that he is once at once angry with their sin. Looking at their self-righteousness and their the hardness of their hearts and he is angry in this moment, but then he's also grieved for them. He's grieved for them because Jesus' desire for them was to experience something infinitely greater than the temporary solace of their own back padding. But Jesus will not allow his freedom and his divine right to be curbed by the self-righteous. And he heals this man knowing that it probably seals his own fate. See, there is a lesson here about the inability of the law to do what we assume oftentimes it will do. I mean, think for this in this moment about the man with the withered hand. What the law allowed him to do was to take the Sabbath day and rest. But here he was, a man who is probably unable to work, likely has been led to a life of being a beggar, a man who very well could be experiencing ongoing pain because of this injury that he had sustained. And so for this man, what kind of a gift was Sabbath? For him, it likely was a reminder that he was unable to work. It was a thumb in his eye. It was a reminder of everything that he had lost and the pain that he had experienced. See, the law could afford this man a day of rest, but it could not provide restoration. And above all else, that's what this man needed. He needed something greater than what the law could provide. He needed Jesus. And that was the fundamental misunderstanding of the Pharisees. So pastor that I'm quite fond of says it this way. He says, religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. But the gospel says, I am accepted by God through Christ, therefore I obey. And the difference between those two perspectives is profound. One is the perspective of the Pharisees. I will accomplish for myself. I will attain for myself. I will create acceptance in God's eyes by virtue of my obedience. And the other says, because of everything Christ has done, because of everything he is, because of his love and his compassion, his forgiveness and his grace, how can I do anything but obey him? It's an act of love. It's duty being turned into choice. And finally, look what it says in verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now, this is fascinating. 
The Pharisees were the religious ruling class of the Jews. They viewed that the only authority that they needed was the authority of God himself. They wanted, again, that theocracy of God ruling over them. They didn't want any kind of outside authority, much less did they want the outside authority of the, of the godless Romans, of these pagans who had invaded their land and dominated their people. And the Herodians, on the other side of the coin, were an irreligious group of political influencers who represented the Roman government. These two groups of people had nothing in common, policy-wise, morality-wise. They had not, no shared opinions other than the fact that they did not like Jesus Christ and his message. And this is so revelatory of the heart of people. The religious hate the idea of grace because it proclaims to their own heart that they are unable to do, uh, unable to do what they most want to do, namely prove their own worth, attain their own place before God, and likewise the irreligious hate God. What is this idea of somebody outside of me telling me what I have to do? You're going to tell me there's some God to whom I have to give an account? And at the heart of both of those groups is the exact same problem. A refusal to recognize a power that is greater than you. A God who spoke the world into, the motion, into motion and demands, demands our attention, demands an answer. And yet it's in this moment that these two groups who have seemingly nothing in common plot together to kill Christ. Because, as Lewis said, you can view Jesus as a heretic deserving death like the Pharisees did. Or you can view him as a revolutionary troublemaker who deserves death like the Herodians did. But what you can't do is remain neutral. And ultimately, these two groups' only common interest would come to fruition when Caiaphas, the high priest worked with Pontius Pilate, the Roman official, to sentence Jesus to death. See, their plan worked. But ultimately, what they did not realize is that in the execution of their own plan, there was a far greater plan being played out. That in the same way, in Genesis chapter 3, as God finished his work of creation and declared in that moment, it's finished and rested. In the very same way, Jesus Christ would be on a cross, would declare his work done, cry out, it is finished. And in that moment, create opportunity for rest for all of his people. I heard a quote this week that's just been on my mind, and, and I want to... I want to um, insert it here because I think it's so profound, even though it's obvious. There's an old evangelical theologian who's passed now. His name was Carl F.H. Henry. Um, many of you will know that name. But uh, among a series of talks that he did, he, he at one point used this phrase. He said, it's hard to be proud at the foot of the cross. When you stand in recognition of who Jesus Christ is, namely that he's God, that he's sinless. That he's the only person who's ever walked the face of the earth who did not deserve death. And when you recognize that that very self-same God-man went to the cross, suffered brutally and died on our behalf, it's incredibly hard to remain proud 
for what we've accomplished. And that is the difference between the sinner who recognizes his need of grace and the Pharisee who says, I do not need your sacrifice. I can accomplish this on my own. Because to declare that there is anything in and of yourself that is worthy of God's love outside of the love that he has placed on you is to ultimately declare that Jesus Christ's death on the cross was worthless. If you didn't need Jesus to die for you, understand that there is nothing noble about Jesus dying. If you didn't need him to die, it wasn't noble and it wasn't selfless. His death was foolish. But in that moment, when Christ declared it is finished, he was declaring once and for all that rest, true rest, lasting rest, deep rest, had been provided for all people. And it's the reason why we're invited to Sabbath. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your gift to us. I thank you for the gift of Sabbath. I thank you, God, that in it, we are reminded of the fact that you continue to work even when we stop. That you've given us as a good and right gift the ability to sit back and to spend time with you, to trust you. God, I thank you that in the cross we find our ultimate rest, the deep and long satisfaction that only you could provide, that all of the work that we attempt to do for ourselves has already been done perfectly by the only one who could ever accomplish it, and that you give freely of that rest yourself. So God, help us to be a people who enter into rest with you, who Sabbath with you, who enjoy our time with you. Because we are a people who are desperately in need of it. And we thank you for your good and your perfect gifts. I'm just going to invite you to stay in a, uh, in a mindset of um, silence, to spend time here at the close of the service, to enter into that rest. Um, to take a couple minutes of silence. And for some of you, this will be the only silence you've had all week between podcasts and radio and TV and constant distractions and family and work. You've taken no time. Would you just take a couple of minutes right now to sit and rest with our God, our creator, our father, our savior, our friend, the lover of our soul, and to enjoy his good gift of his presence.